Are the Chinese holding us hostage? Are Disney and DeSantis secretly in cahoots? Is Devin Archer a spook? I have so many questions. Okay, people, let's begin. We have liftoff! Get up, everybody! Are you ready to be baited with the truth? Good, because you're listening to the Truth Bait Podcast. I'm documentary filmmaker and podcaster Andrew Marcus, flying solo today as we deconstruct the propaganda war being waged against the American people. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, let's get to the truth. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Can't forget that those that audience over there in the B studio. There you go. Thank you all for tuning in. That's right. I'm without my trusted partner today. Jeremy Siegel's world has been rocked by an avalanche of personal and family matters that demand his attention. And as much as he wants to be here with us right now, he simply must attend to other matters. He cannot be here. He wants to be here. He cannot be here. So, Jeremy, you're with us in spirit. I hope you're listening. And if you are actually listening, a great bit would be for you to write me at truth at truthbait.com and let me know how you think I'm doing in your absence it's, it's going to be frustrating for you because you're not going to be able to shake me back to my senses in real time when I say something insane. But uh, now you know how the rest of our producers have felt all this time. So, uh, yeah, you just have to be in the same boat as they are, uh, as, as they are, as them. I don't know. Uh, and speaking of our producers, please share the show. Ladies and gentlemen, please share the show. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for sharing the show. That's how we grow. And speaking of the show, let's go. Uh, I have, uh, you know, there's there's real news and then there is just distraction. Which should we do first? Should we get into real news first or should we get into distraction? Let's get into real news. Let's, let's get the real news out of the way and then we'll take care of We'll pay attention to all the fun distractions out there. I don't think anything is more real than China. And I don't know if people caught uh, the recent story, but you know, uh, the United States uh, offered a $345 million aid package to Taiwan to defend them against China's aggression. And then a narrative popped up right on the heels of that, uh, talking about how China has inserted malware into our military uh, and industrial complex and that it, it could shut us down, it could shut our military down in the event that they invade Taiwan. So there was a flurry of narratives that came about. Let's let's just dive right in. And here's, oh yeah, we can't forget our music for our China update. Here we go. The Biden administration announced a $345 million military aid package for the island nation. China's Taiwan Affairs Office saying Saturday, quote, no matter how many U.S. weapons 
It will not shake our resolve to solve the Taiwan problem or shake our firm will to realize the reunification of our motherland. I mean, China is planning to go to war. Xi Jinping doesn't stop talking about going to war. He visits the Eastern Theater Command, which is the command that would attack Taiwan. And we know that they're mobilizing not only the military, but also civilians. The Biden administration reportedly is searching for possible Chinese malware targeting U.S. global military operations. One congressional official telling the New York Times, by the way, and excuse me, this is the New York Times, not the journal, essentially a ticking time bomb that could give China the power to interrupt or slow American military deployments or resupply operations by cutting off power, water, and communications. Here we have a China that is obviously getting itself ready to go into battle, and we have a Pentagon and an American political leadership that has really very little sense of urgency. We're at grave risk at this moment. I think what I what I still don't understand to this day is the Biden administration's willingness to send over uh, official after official to China when they knew they knew that they had malware in our military systems and potentially in our domestic systems as well. That's what Blinken went over. Then you had uh, Janet Yellen. Then you had uh, John Kerry on behalf of the administration. What is the game here? So that was Fox Business, Gordon Chang on Fox Business. And that is the, you know, that's the mainstream narrative. You're supposed to be very afraid of this malware uh, and the rising tensions between the United States and China, and you should be afraid of them, but uh, at the very least concerned. But that is, I don't think, I don't think the malware narrative is everything that they're presenting it to be. First of all, you have to remember they're telling us about it, so there's a reason that they're telling us about it, uh, and there's a reason that they're telling us about it right now. Uh, let's let's go a little bit further in. This is ABC News. Secretary of State Antony Blinken saying the U.S. is working to try to keep things peaceful. We're doing that in part by engaging China, but also, as necessary, opposing its efforts to disrupt freedom. And just this weekend, the U.S. announced that big. And that was that was not my edit. That <laughs> that's. That's ABC News's edit on Good Morning America. What what they have Blinken say? It, it, this is just the strangest way to present a comment from him. Efforts to disrupt freedom, China, but also as necessary, opposing its efforts to disrupt freedom. To disrupt, <laughs> he is doing everything he can to to oppose their efforts to disrupt freedom. What does that even mean? Um. On to News Nation, which, uh, remember, used to be WGN News. In terms of how legitimate these claims are about Chinese malware, on a scale of 1 to 10, is... Now, you know you're listening to a high-quality news analysis when they're going to put it on the 1 to 10 scale. In terms of how legitimate these claims are about Chinese malware, on a scale of 1 to 10... Is it true? Do you believe that this is actually happening? And if so, how dire would it be for our military? Yeah, look, it's a very serious concern. It's something that we worked on, looked at closely during my tenure. Uh, I've always said since my days in, in office that I thought the first shots of an opening conflict with China would be in both space and cyberspace. Is there any connection between this malware and TikTok with all the attention that that's received over the past year? 
I think it's brought of a, a part of a broader spectrum spectrum of initiatives that the Chinese uh, Chinese are out there doing, trying to gather intelligence, secure information. I want to ask why we're just learning about this now, but I kind of already know the answer. But why don't you give any insights you have? <laughs> I want to know why we're learning about it now as well. She seems to have the answers, but doesn't want to tell us. I don't. Uh, why? What does she think that it is? She never does tell us, but I just found that very interesting that she she it feels compelled to let us know she's got a reason why, but does not ever bother to tell us. I don't know. What is that about? I want to ask why we're just learning about this now, but I kind of already know the answer, but why don't you give any insights you have? Well, we've actually been talking about this for years. A lot of concern about Chinese malware, Russian malware, North Korean malware. It's been out there. It's just getting attention from this article. And that was Mark Esper, uh, who was uh, former Secretary of Defense, uh, 2019 and 2020, so under Trump. Um, yeah, so it it the the TikTok, the raising of TikTok, that makes a bell go off for me. I actually have like the literal bell uh, because. You know, there's, there's a lot of talk. I, I, I certainly have heard this on the No Agenda podcast. Uh, they talk about this a lot. The uh, the competition, the tick, TikTok is basically, TikTok is eating everybody's lunch in terms of the ad revenue. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, Google, they're all suffering a loss of ad dollars to TikTok. And so there's been a lot of speculation that the drive to ban TikTok is not so much because it's a spy app, although that's certainly valid reason enough, but also because these large tech companies are all feeling threatened. They can't compete. They're having trouble competing with the latest and greatest apps, which all seem to be coming from China. A popular new digital stalker that's more dangerous than TikTok? China has a new technique for targeting American citizens. We're talking about the Chinese-developed shopping app called Timu. You probably remember this Super Bowl ad. I like it. Yep, it's mine. The prices blow my mind. I feel so rich. Oh, yeah. I feel like a billionaire. Wow, that that just I don't remember that from the Super Bowl because I don't watch the Super Bowl. I don't watch the ads. I've given up on the entire thing. I, I may have to start paying attention again just for this podcast, but uh, I would be happy to avoid every Super Bowl for the rest of time. Lured by that ad and super cheap prices on the products it offers, downloads of the app have exploded, making it the number one free shopping app, beating out a. And you know what? I don't watch Asian pornography, but I feel like this is what it, that's what I it like sounds it. like. It's mine. The prices blow my mind. I feel so rich. Oh, yeah. I feel like a billionaire. <laughs> I love how you have to feel like a billionaire now because feeling like a millionaire is not, <laughs> thanks to the left, is really not very much, it's not worth very much anymore. You have to feel like a billionaire. The online shopping megastore tries to cast itself as being founded in Boston, but the parent company is Chinese-owned. Wait, I'm sorry. Hold on. Let me... Lured by that ad and super cheap prices on the products it offers, downloads of the app have exploded, making it the number one free shopping app, beating out American behemoths like Walmart. The online shopping megastore tries to cast itself as being founded in Boston, but the parent company is Chinese-owned by PDD Holdings. PDD Holdings moved headquarters from Shanghai, China to Dublin, Ireland. 
Not only does it apparently monitor and track your activity, it gains full access to everything on your phone, including banking details. Yeah, it's called Timu. It's a shopping app. Of course it gets your banking details. You give them your banking details so that you could use it to shop. You're literally inputting your credit card number. How did they get it? It's a mystery. Oh, they could use that to get my address that I also input so that they could ship things to me. So what 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 are these apps after? <laughs> well, they're after our personal information. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party is engaged in a massive data collection effort all around the world, trying to collect information, especially on Americans, but on on all citizens of the world, all all seven plus billion of us. Uh, they're putting it into giant supercomputers. They're using AI to to factor out uh, weaknesses and strengths, especially of America, their principal target. So, what's your best get, uh, guess of what they want to do with that information? Well, I mean, look, I'm, I'm not buying into the Timu craze, and I don't think anybody else should. Anybody who understands that you can't get a gold necklace, gold in quotes, <laughs> for a dollar, should understand that this is this is a scam, that they're not really selling a product. Uh, they're buying information from you. Uh, China wants to dominate the world. They've made it very clear they want to dominate Asia by 2035. They want to dominate the world by, by 2049, which is inching closer and closer year by year. So that is Stephen Mosier the Population Research Institute president, uh, speaking on Fox News. And, yeah, you know, so he's giving the warning that, that, these, that these apps are driven just to, they're Trojan horses, just to get our data. And by the way, everything he's describing, that's what Apple, I mean, that, yeah, that's what Apple does, that's what Google does, that's what Facebook does, that's what uh, Twitter, now X, does. They're all doing this. That's what our NSA does. They're all aggregating this data and creating these incredibly powerful models and probably and, and using them for predict for behavior prediction for all for really for better ad targeting ad sales. Uh, I think is is the original uh, point behind it. So I don't see Timu uh, or. Uh, any of these other apps, uh, TikTok, as as the Trojan horse threats that they're made out to be. Okay, uh, don't get me wrong; I'd be fine if they were banned from the marketplace with every other Chinese product. I've got no problem with that. The but I don't think that the media is being honest in the way that they're reporting this because why why did Timu? Nobody had heard of Timu. Okay. They've, they've, they're coming out of nowhere, and suddenly they're the biggest, hottest thing. And it is because they ship directly from a uh, probably a Uyghur-staffed uh, a, a, a factory in China, and they're shipping directly to the consumer. They have removed Target. They've removed uh, uh, Kohl's. They've removed Costco. They're removing these uh, groups from the from the. They're, they're basically looking at them as middlemen, and they've cut out the middlemen, and they are now shipping direct, and uh, it's undercutting everybody. They're doing it at cutthroat prices, which China's known to do. They dump uh, whatever industry they're trying to take over. They dump very cheap versions. Uh, onto the marketplace and drive other businesses out of business. It is a form of economic warfare. Uh, but why is it happening now? Well, Stephen Mosier gives a, a, a bit of a clue. 
We put tariffs on Chinese-made goods. Those tariffs are still in place, 15% on a lot of goods. But there is now an exception for these small packages that are being mailed by the millions from China. If the package is worth less than $800, uh, the Chinese shipper doesn't have to pay the tariff. So they're getting away with tens of billions of dollars in tariffs uh, by using these direct-from-the-factory uh, shipping, shipping facilities. So it's about the money. If they didn't have the tariffs uh, uh, as a hurdle, they would just be selling directly to our uh, to their middlemen, to Target, to Costco, to whoever, wherever else they've been. You know, they normally move this merchandise. Uh, but meanwhile, the the virus that uh, the malware that China has allegedly put into our systems, they probably have, and I would be willing to bet you they're since they tend to steal everything that we design, it's probably a virus we made. This is not such a stretch. Do you remember Stuxnet? In January 2010, inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency were visiting the Natanz uranium enrichment plant in Iran. They noticed that the centrifuges, which are used to enrich uranium gas, were tearing themselves apart, one after another. Hundreds of them. Nobody could figure out why. Not the inspectors, not the Iranian technicians who worked on site, not even the engineers who built the system. Meanwhile, a computer security firm in Belarus got a strange request from a client in Iran. Their machines were rebooting over and over again. Even completely wiping the hard drives and reinstalling the operating systems didn't help. Again, the problem was a mystery. But when the technicians pulled apart the operating systems, they found a new and very unusual virus. They called it Stuxnet. What security experts had discovered is called a zero-day exploit. And it's called this because when a vulnerability is unknown to the software developer, and Microsoft, and the antivirus community, and the rest of the world, that means there are zero days of protection against it. Nobody knows about a zero-day vulnerability except the attacker exploiting it. Cybersecurity companies research over 12 million viruses a year. And in that time, they might find maybe 10 or 12 zero-day exploits. It's a once-in-a-million occurrence, but Stuxnet contained four zero-day exploits. This is unheard of. It never happened before, and it hasn't happened since. Eventually, it was discovered that Stuxnet wasn't trying to steal passwords or data. It was actually targeting the software on Siemens programmable logic controllers called PLCs. Now, PLCs are small computers used in factories and industry that control pretty much everything. Assembly lines, water pumps, power plants, and nuclear refining. Critical infrastructure runs on PLCs. If you can hack a PLC, you can take down an entire country without firing a single shot. A virus this complex and this dangerous requires millions of dollars to create. It takes time, the best programming talent in the world, and absolute secrecy. Experts at first suspected, and then they were positive, that Stuxnet could only have been designed by a country looking to cripple or wage war against another country. It's a act of war. Please, let's be frank here. Okay, countries are constantly hacking each other and spying on each other, looking for information. And most countries have agencies and protocols to protect against this. It's a game of intelligence, cat and mouse, it's been going on forever. But Stuxnet was the first time a nation state developed proactive, offensive, weaponized code that could do actual physical damage to another country. If a nuclear reactor could be destroyed from the inside, what other real-world damage could Stuxnet or other malicious code do? 
If you attack a power grid or a water supply, lots of people are going to die. So Iran felt like this was not a simple covert act of espionage, but a blatant act of war committed by the US and its allies. And the Stuxnet code is just out there now. If you know what you're doing, you can take the code apart, make a few changes, and now you've got a really sophisticated weapon. You can even do this if you don't know what you're doing, which is probably more dangerous. Now, as we speak, thousands of people around the world have the Stuxnet code, and they're tinkering with it, seeing what different pieces can be used in their own attacks. Stuxnet is the best cyber weapon the United States has ever developed, and it gave it to the world for free. Now, for perspective, Natanz in Iran was a brand new nuclear facility with an air-gapped network and a team of security professionals working around the clock and it was taken down easily. But a lot of industrial control systems are not as sophisticated. Is cyber warfare like the nuclear arms race? Where mutually assured destruction means that no country would dare attack another? When it was unleashed on Iran, it was an Hiroshima moment. And like Hiroshima, Stuxnet was only the beginning. A test case for more advanced, more devastating cyber weapons. And one of those weapons has already been deployed. That weapon is Nitro Zeus. Nitro Zeus, or NZ, was <laughs> designed to infect Iranian infrastructure and await orders. In case of war, NZ would disable Iran's air defenses, disrupt military command and control, take down parts of the power grid. It would attack domestic communications, transportation, banks, financial systems. Now, I don't have to point out that these aren't just military targets. Millions of civilians would be harmed if Nitro Zeus or a virus like that was used on anyone. Now, according to former intelligence operatives, Nitro Zeus has already been deployed and is living in Iranian infrastructure right now, just awaiting instructions. Yeah, it's only in Iran. It's nowhere else. <laughs> um, yeah, wow. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, the, the, I would bet that China has fielded a virus, a malware like this, just like we have. It's probably the same one we used. It's probably the same one we probably used and put into their systems. There's no way it's just in Iran. And uh, Stuxnet, this is the thing, the, the way that Stuxnet was discovered was because it didn't just stay in the air-gapped system that it was planted into. It escaped. And once it escaped, it went everywhere. And chances are you have Stuxnet on your system right now, on your phone, somewhere. It's everywhere. And it's been everywhere. It's like herpes. And it's here to stay. It's never going anywhere. And I think that it's, you know... Uh, what did, what did they call that insane new uh, the Nitro Zeus? Nitro Zeus. Yeah, it probably is real. It probably exists. And we have it. They have it. And that is what makes the coming conflict, coming Cold War so dangerous because we do. We have these. We have this over each other. And. You know, I think that if we turn out the lights on them, it is not quite as much of a setback for them as it is if they turn out the lights on us. And I don't just mean the lights. I mean all of it. Uh, and I just want to say, so this is, um, the this report comes from, let me pull it up here. Uh, it comes from... The Y Files on YouTube, and I have to say, I find it uh, a very. You should go check this out because um, the Y Files on YouTube. 
the 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 music that he plays is so ominous. Nitro Zeus or NZ when it was unleashed on Iran, it was a Hiroshima moment. And like okay, and it is it's a heavy subject, so maybe people like having that kind of music over their heavy subjects. But if you look at this guy's video, he's sitting in a room next to his co-host for this YouTube channel is called Hecklefish, and it's a goldfish in a uh, in a little goldfish bowl. And they animate it and have a talk, and he heckles. He heckles the he heckles himself. He heckles the host. Uh, I'm assuming the host is also uh, voicing the fish as well. So he's heckling himself, uh, which is just a striking contradiction to this Roshima. music. Stuxnet was only the beginning. A <laughs> test case for more advanced. And a, fi- a goldfish in the bowl next to him. Hecklefish. It's a striking contradiction. So also a striking contradiction. China, very uh, bellicose, very aggressive. They recently, with Russia, uh, navigated seven warships right next to Alaska, came right up to the international border, and, uh, uh, you know, talking a very big game. But they are also suffering right now. They are suffering the most devastating flooding in the history of modern China, maybe in the history of China altogether. This is from a uh, YouTube channel called China Fact Chasers. We've heard from them before. These guys have a great bead on what's going on in China, thanks to they lived there for, I think they lived there for like a decade um, and uh, here's their take on what is happening with the flooding. This is the first time that China's experienced horrific, horrific flooding in the capital yes. where, you know, the dictator lives. Yes. And it has so many implications and so many things that are important uh, surrounding this event and so many things that are being covered up. First, we're going to start out with something that's quite unprecedented, and that is the Forbidden City being flooded. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the Forbidden City is just off of Tiananmen Square, and it hasn't flooded in hundreds of years. No, 140 years. This is the worst flooding, the worst disaster from mm-hmm. floods that China's ever seen in documented history. Now, Tiananmen Square is very, very, very important. It is uh, the, the gate of heavenly peace in China, mm-hmm. and that's, that's literally indicative of the, of the dynasties, of the leader and the ruler. Right? Yes. Which is very important to understand because there is not supposed to be disasters in that area. And we'll get into that why. It's very auspicious. Yeah. And there's something that we wanted to focus on here is not so much the ecological devastation. And collapse. Yeah, that you one might say. But the Chinese government's response. And yeah. this is super important here. I've been speaking to friends in China. Yep, same. And they don't even know this is going on. Not a clue. I had to talk to people in Beijing. Outside of Beijing, people didn't even know. And actually, I lied. One person knew about it, and it was like, oh, I saw that on the news. But worst disaster in 140 years. Worst disaster in the documented history of China. Yeah, but it's kind of back page news. Can you imagine that? If Washington, D.C. and Virginia were, uh, you know, up to eight, uh, 12 feet of water surrounding the White House. Okay, now I know some of you listening are probably 
a smile is creeping across your face as I describe that. Shame on you, okay? Just because of the current occupants, the current occupiers of DC. We don't want to see it underwater. We don't want to see uh, any harm come to DC. But could you imagine if that happened and you're over in Kentucky and you've got no idea that that has taken place? You saw a blip on the news that there was some flooding on a street and the government came in to rescue people. Because that's what is happening in China right now. So he says there were uh, Liu Qiliang, so they had six or seven cars. So right now they're describing a bridge that collapsed. And in China, they take tremendous, the CCP takes huge pride in their bridges. They talk about how fast they're able to build them and how the amazing construction. And apparently they're just being wiped out and... It's embarrassing to them. I mean, when you look at this flooding, of course, there being I don't know what bridges would stand up to this flooding. The images that are coming out are uh, so dramatic. Fell into the water yeah, and got swept away saw. from what he saw. But like, this is what the Chinese government's response was. Yeah, I mean, this is insane. So let's see what they did. Look at, see the XXX on the screen? Yes. They're blocking out. And by the way, these cl- a lot of these clips were removed, period. Yes. But they were blocking out the name of the bridge yeah. in the subtitle. So they're showing a, you know, a video that somebody uploaded to social media in China. And there are subtitles, the, you know, the, the social media uh, uh, platform must generate su- uh, t- subtitles automatically. And the government has the ability to come in and X out... They don't. They didn't X out the entire subtitle. Just the characters that they wanted to X out, which that's just creepy. I would bet you dimes to dollars it was American technology that uh, that that is a it's an, it's American technology enabling this. And this could. Uh, what's the over under on how long until this is what's happening here? Until subtitles, uh, closed captioning are censored. By the platforms here. It won't be censored by the government. It'll be by private companies. Yeah, he cannot say the name in his subtitles because yeah. it's being um, completely censored. Yes. Now, that is the same bridge that you saw earlier, yeah. where the six or seven cars, the one guy witnessed getting... Just uh, in that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Imagine you are the Chinese government, yes. okay? Yes. Now, you've got to send out your rescue workers because right. this bridge has collapsed. Yeah. What would you do? Let me ask you. What would you do if this is what you were faced with? Here's a half-collapsed bridge. Okay, it started to subside now. Now you can send in the rescue workers. What's the first thing you do? You absolutely send in rescue workers from the air to get an aerial view to see if there's any stragglers or people Mm. floating around. You send in boats from the side, Mm. rescue rafts. You get a whole team. You get firefighters. You get ropes. You get everything you can. Because you're in the capital. This is where all the stuff is. All the rescue workers and the best equipment is in Beijing. I mean, I would also be like, let's go remove the cars off of the bridge. Let's make sure there's no one in there. Let's make sure that the bridge is properly sealed off. Make sure it's all safe. Make sure that, you know, let's start clearing the debris. Let's go and search over there. But what does the Chinese government do? What do you think was their priority? And you can get a hint from the the fact that the bridge name was uh, subtitles were, were removed. <laughs> Did you see that? Did, I I hope everybody saw that. Rather than go and actually address the problem, they send the people out to put up these barriers on the side so nobody can see it. They physically censored the bridge collapse so people don't 
think that a bridge collapsed. So you can't see the collapsed instead of bridge rescuing. from the road. Yes. Instead so, of rescuing. Yeah. Instead of sending people out to actually address the problem, the priority of the Chinese government is to censor that there is a problem. So the video that was coming out about this bridge collapse was coming from people standing on you know the next uh, overpass over, the next bridge down the way, and they had a good view of it, and the Chinese government... They had, there are still cars on the bridge. Who knows if there are people in those cars? The Chinese authorities' top priority was covering, <laughs> putting up giant uh, uh, sheets of metal to block the view from the road so that nobody could take video or even see it. You know, when you're driving down the road, you're not, it, it really it's a safety measure. So you're not tempted to look uh, at the disaster and accidentally drive off the bridge you're on. So they really, they care. It's, just, it's not, it's not, why does everybody look at it so negatively? What is going on here, Seamilk? Oh, and then they, they show this. This is incredible. Uh, they're talking about the trucks that, uh, you may see video of this uh, occasionally, you know, in, in uh, some countries where trucks drive down the road and they spray water on the road and it's to, you know, just to, it's their road cleaning. Here, it's happening in the flood. What is going on here, Seamilk? This is a, a water sprayer truck, which uh, what its job is, is to clean the road. When you ride in, if you ride a motorcycle, every yes. morning in the cities, they send these trucks out that just spray like sewer water on the roads, yeah. basically, right? It shows you how uh, robotic people have to be in China. You have to. You can't have your own initiative. Because if I was a driver of one of these spray the road trucks. Government truck. Yeah. And it's like, okay, I've got my job to do, but the streets are literally flooded with water. I would say it's probably unnecessary for me to get into my truck this morning and go spray down the, and hose down the streets. But you have to But do you it. just have to do you it because do you know, it. you're just the a government cog said. in the machine. It really is amazing. The truck is wading down the street. The water is up almost to the door of the truck and it is spraying water on the street because they don't dare not do what they're told. Now, why is China covering this up? Why are they embarrassed of a natural disaster? Why is the Chinese government panicking and trying so hard to bury these floods and play them down? If there's one word you need to know for this entire episode, it's Tianming. Tianming means the mandate of heaven. Basically, if we have to go back to around 300 BC, and this is very, very simple to understand. Yeah, 300 is, BC is a long time it ago. It is, but this is where this current idea of the mandate of heaven kind of came from and persists today. Yeah. Right? This is Mencius and Mengzi. He said, the people are of supreme importance. The altars of soil and grain uh, come next. Last comes the ruler. So this is the priorities of how sure. things work, right? This is why he who gains the confidence of a, a multitudinous people will be emperor. When a local lord endangers the altars of soil and grain, he should be replaced, right? Yes. So that's a key phrase there. Yes. This is the most important. And yet floods and droughts come by the agency of heaven. Then the altars should be replaced, mm -hmm. right? So the idea, and this is kind of the dynastical cycle, is that when the emperor cannot provide for the people anymore, mm -hmm. the empire or the dynasty is hit with disasters, usually floods and droughts. Right. This causes the people... To be like, wait a minute, we need new leadership yes. here. Maybe you guys get this idea, right? So if uh, the people are starving and so on, that means the leader needs to get out. Right. Basically be replaced. And this is what China is trying to cover up. But there have been plenty of 
almost revolts in China recently, but they've all been quashed because, you know, things are a bit different nowadays. With the information age, China's yeah. very good at, like, being able to monitor everybody and stop these things, these revolts starting. It would have already happened yeah. if they weren't constantly spending so much time and money putting out fires all the time and arresting anyone who even suggests, hey, let's meet up and talk about this problem. The dynasty is there, and this is the next step. Dynasty is considered to have lost the mandate of heaven. And when you lose the mandate of heaven, it means that you are no longer legitimately the ruler of China. Yes. And because the people recognize that. They say, hey, wait, all this stuff doesn't work anymore. Mm. All this stuff, the housing, the housing crisis, the economy's dipping. We're yeah. losing all of our global international relations. Mm -hmm. You know, we've become kind of, uh, we're being looked down upon internationally. Yeah. We now look to the leadership and we say, wait a minute. Didn't that flood just happen? And then the flood goes to Beijing. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it gets too real for a lot of, at least a subset of people that look at this and say, this is really weird. So the CCP is terrified of a natural disaster because of their uh, supposed mandate from heaven. <laughs> they're no longer, they're terrified that they're going to be considered no longer heaven blessed, no longer mandated by heaven. And I guess in China, that's a huge deal. Uh, and I just wanted to mention, they talked about that there have been recent uprisings, but this is a different time now because because of modern technology, they're so able to stay on top of everybody and basically suppress any dissent before it ever reaches uh, any kind of critical mass. I wonder where they got that technology. Hmm. Any Cisco routers uh, involved in that? Uh, you know... If you look at the history of progressivism and you look at World War II, you will note that the largest corporations in this country were working very closely with Nazi Germany. Just read the book IBM and the Holocaust or War Against the Weak. You will see that General Motors uh, basically helped uh, uh, mechanized the blitzkrieg uh, uh ibm literally leased and staffed the uh select the the what are they called the uh selectronic ballots the old punch card ballots uh the original punch card ballots you you have to be old enough to know what that is if you don't know what that is go look it up the the original ibm punch card uh, uh computing uh what did they call them let me see i'm gonna look this up so i get the name right IBM punch cards. Let's see here. Uh, yeah, the IBM punch cards, also known as Hollerith cards or IBM cards. Uh, the, for those of us who are old enough, we used to take tests on these at school. Uh, we people used to vote on these. Um, you, you you punch a little hole through a particular spot, and it's a uh, that's how it computed. These are early, early, early mega computers, and they were used to database race uh, traits, race and religion traits in Nazi Germany. And the way that they the Nazis were able to use these machines, which were highly proprietary machines, very coveted uh, IP. Uh, for, of IBM's, IBM refused to sell the Nazis the machines. 
they leased them the machines. And then they wouldn't even train the Nazis on how to use the machines. What did they do? They staffed the machines. IBM staffed the machines that they leased the Nazis to database everybody's race traits and their addresses and their religions so that they could round up the Jews and the other undesirables. Thank you, IBM. So this is no different. American corporations, Western corporations are in bed with the modern Nazis of the CCP and uh, the oppression that the Chinese people are experiencing right now is brought in no, in no small part due to, uh, due to the uh, wonderful corporations of the United States of America. Oh, and uh, they also mentioned uh, uh, Timu, that corporation, the, the, the app that is uh, shipping directly to the United States uh, and other Western countries, probably all around the world. Um, if you're waiting for your order, the floods may present a small problem. By the way, this is a, a Quidi distribution. So it's basically like a delivery. shipping delivery distribution plant. Sorry, there go all your Timu orders down the river. <laughs> and it is a, I mean, it, down the river, this is. Go look for footage. Go to uh, at the China Show. I would assume that's on Twitter uh, and on YouTube again. They are China Fact Chasers, uh, and the the footage they have up there is dramatic. The other videos they post are fantastic. I highly recommend them. Um, you know, the, the Chinese government, the the CCP, is facing this. What is maybe an a, a, a traumatic existential threat to their existence. And where is the American media? These guys are the only ones really covering it. I, I went to NBC, I went to CBS, ABC, CNN. Uh, CNN had one printed story from last week, uh, no video that I could find. NBC had three videos up, one of which was a, sh- a minute and a half package that was basically just carrying the Chinese propaganda, showing them rescuing people, which is crazy. They're not rescuing people. They're putting up obstacles so you can't see the disaster. That's what they're focused on. Uh, then they have some manufactured rescue videos. That's what NBC is running on a short clip. They, the other two videos they've got up have no... It's not a package. It's just the stuff that, that's basically AI-generated uh, uh, on YouTube. There's you know it's music with images and text on the screen. Garbage. No one else in American media is covering it. You have this opportunity to generate... We have a global propaganda machine that is aimed at us every day. Will they aim it at the Chinese right now? Show them the disaster that is happening in their country and 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 feed the narrative that perhaps the CCP is no longer existing under the mandate of heaven. No. They're covering for them. Our American corporations are covering for them. ABC, Disney, that has the giant Chinese unit. All these companies have giant Chinese units. So yeah, we're not going to get... They're not going to help at all. They really could narratively help out on this one. They're not going to. Uh, Alright, that's the end of my China update. Closes that out. Yeah, I... Yeah, okay, well, let's go to... Let's go to one of the... Let's go to the distraction. The distraction. Uh, you know what the distraction of the week is. We haven't played this. I haven't played this in a long time. 
Distraction of the week. Yes, I think the distraction of the week is Devin Archer. And really, he was the distraction of last week, but the, the nature of the schedule of this program, it is the distraction of this week. So Devin Archer testified in front of the Congress uh, uh, in the investigation against Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. Devin Archer was business partners with Hunter Biden for many years. Um, and in fact, here, I'm going to read to you. I have the transcript. I'm going to read some sections of the transcript. And uh, the first part that I'll read you is uh, Devin Archer's background. They, they ask him his background. He says, I attended North Shore Day School in Long Island, Glen Cove. I went to Glenwood Landing Elementary. I went to North Shore High School. I went to Yale University and then started at Citibank and got most of my kind of credit and finance training through Citibank Management Associates program. Now, I'm going to stop there for a second uh, because you, you may he says, and then started at Citibank and got most of my kind of credit and finance training through. So he speaks very oddly through this entire transcript. And I'm going to read what he says. Uh, and I'm just going to plant this in your mind. If you're old enough to remember who Cato Kalin is, Cato Kalin was the permanent house guest of O.J. Simpson, who ended up being a key witness. Uh, uh, I think he was supposed to be a witness against O.J. He ended up being a witness basically for O.J. He was basically a witness for nobody. He spoke in such babble that you couldn't understand if, if the jury if the jury had asked for the transcript uh as they were in deliberations they would have looked at Cato Kalin's transcript and just their eyes would have glazed over some of them might have uh literally gone into seizures there would have been no way to understand it it was gibberish he just said gibberish this guy doesn't say gibberish but he speaks in a way and I always thought that uh, Cato was talking this way because he didn't want to say anything to indict his friend OJ. He loved OJ. And I get the sense that uh, Devin Archer doesn't want to say anything that's going to get Hunter in trouble. And looked at through that lens, I think actually everyone built this as he was coming into, he was he's the 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 devastating witness in the investigation. He's going to expose the Bidens. And uh, yeah, he did expose some stuff about Hunter Biden, but I really feel like he was much more a witness. Uh, he was Joe Biden's witness, really, is who he was. So he attended all of these uh, privileged North Shore schools. He, he, the guy is definitely privileged and good for him. Um, he says, I was a management associate in Asia. I was headquartered in Vietnam. I ended up, I started out as basically a junior position. It was called a management associate. Now, I do find it very interesting that this guy who he looks... He comes from the Northeast, but he looks corn-fed. He uh, blonde hair, um, you know, just your 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 classic. Uh, 
in Asia, the guy would stick out like a sore thumb, and he is immediately placed in Vietnam. Uh, uh, they must have he maybe he studied Asian finance. I don't know, uh, but he found himself in Vietnam. And then I moved to Citicorp Asia Capital Limited, which was at the time the kind of Asian, the theater was Asian. I don't know exactly what he means by that, but okay, the theater was, he's saying he was in Asia somewhere, kind of Asian. Okay. Question, how did you come to know Hunter Biden and the Biden family? Answer, there's a rumor that we overlapped and met when he was at law school and I was at undergrad, but I, somehow I just keep reading that, but I don't think that was the case. He says, I don't think that was the case. So he doesn't know. He's basically saying, I don't know how I met Hunter. He goes on to say, I think we met probably, we met in LA. I can't name the year, but a Democratic convention in LA probably. What was that, 2000? Maybe you wouldn't know, but some of these guys might. It was, I forget. It was LA, Boston, 2004. So it was one of those. It was just a handshake. My partner at the time, Chris Heinz, and Hunter had known each other casually again. And that's where, that's, that was really where we, you know, kind of generated a relationship. That was probably in 2008-ish. Wow. Okay, that is, I don't even, like, I'm tempted to read that again because there's no way anybody followed that. But I don't know the point because if I read it again, nobody, still nobody would follow it. He maybe met him in 2000, maybe it was 2004, but it was probably 2008-ish at a convention. It was just a handshake. He's hanging out with Chris Hines. This guy is very well-connected, Devin Archer. For a guy who speaks in total mishmash, he is a mover and a shaker and extremely well-connected, and I think there's a reason for that. Uh, according to the narrative, in 2008, Devin Archer got the brilliant idea to work with Hunter to help him develop a private advisory business, which included its very own real estate funds. Totally coincidentally, this was the very same year Obama first entered the White House. Now, I don't know that it inspired Devin, but... (laughs) Devin enters the picture when Obama enters the picture. Devin Archer was partnered with Hunter. Devin developed the business, the the clients and the finance, and Hunter delivered the connections, the brand. And that was what Devin keeps talking about in the transcripts. He refers to the Bidens as the brand. And uh, here, let's see. Tucker... This people saw probably saw this Tucker, and this is how you know this. This was the distraction of the week. Tucker Carlson inter- got the scoop, the big scoop interview with Devin Archer. You know, our partnership started in 2008, 2009 ish. Um, conversation started. That's when I re met Hunter and actually had a you know sit down and meal with him. Talked about the transition from lobbying into strategic advisory, and then kind of a you know some type of coalescence around having a private equity fund that would have this unique access and understanding of a regulatory environment in D.C. <laughs> Again, got it. 
I thought that was very interesting that they're just... I think that Tucker is just having a laugh with him, uh, not because he's in on the joke with him, although I think that may be part of it, but he's also, he's he's being Devin Archer's pal. They're, they're gamming it up together, and maybe that'll open Devin Archer up more. Uh, but I think that whatever is revealed in, in this interview, it, it's by design, so... Uh, here's what more. were the skill, the specific skills that he brought to clients? Well, at the end of the day, he, you know, he had a career in Washington, yeah. uh, graduated Yale Law School and had a very big network in, in D.C. and brought that know-how and understanding of D.C. and ultimately the Biden brand. He wasn't doing legal work. I mean, he wasn't in the counsel's office at Burisma, right? No, no. So the, the network and the Biden brand sounds like the the kind of key component of Absolutely, what yeah. he was bringing. Yep. The brand of Biden, you know, adds a lot of power when your dad's the vice president. The initial idea around the business that they were going to provide, you know, the government insight and an additional network to raise capital and then, you know, deal with regulatory issues that you might have at the corporate level. Right. Regulatory issues. Exactly. Okay. So that would be more his area. Right. That would be his space. Right. But did he have a, a sophisticated understanding of regulation, do you think? Um, I think that he led a team that had had a had a sophisticated. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> because you got to be an expert in knowing the guy, and he was the guy that was the expert in knowing the guy. If you're listening closely, you can hear the knife being inserted into Hunter's back. <laughs> Devin Archer is destroying Hunter. He's definitely a witness against Hunter. Hunter, they're setting up. Joe, not so much, and that's why I think he's. Devin Archer is really the witness for Joe Biden. He's covering up for Joe Biden. He's throwing Hunter on the bus and covering up for Joe Biden. He was an expert in knowing the guy. Right. And who was the guy he knew? Uh, well, he knew a lot of people, but obviously yep. there was some familiar, you know, some, his brother, his father, uh, yep. uh, some of his, his father's siblings. So he, he knew a lot of people. And, and obviously, I know you're pointing to, you know, the father being the key relationship. That's well, true. no, I, I'm just trying to get a sense of like, Washington's not a money town. Right. You know, people don't aren't in business in Washington for the right. most part, and most people don't have business skills that I've noticed in 30 years of living there. Um, so really, the business of Washington is is selling access. That's what it looked like to me. Yes. Not just Hunter Biden, but like yeah, no, that's I what think that's. Do. I mean, I think that's the one of the like core misconceptions. I mean, it seems like when I you know understanding a regulatory environment means selling access at the end of the day. Yeah. That, that's how I interpret it, and I think that's how most people on you know in Wall Street, whether they admit it or not, interpret it. When people say, well, there's some question about whether Hunter was trading on his father's name. If you live in Washington, like that's the whole city right there. Right. I think you, you know the answer to that. At the end of the day, right. so he had the best advantage to do that because of where he was. And, you know, we thought that when we went into business, this was a great opportunity for us. So that's very damning for Hunter. It, he... Uh, one of the big narratives that came out of this, uh, of his testimony was that, you know, he, he mentions that, that Hunter would put Joe Biden on the phone. Joe Biden attended a couple of dinners and in every one of his, of, of, uh, Devin Archer's recounting of these events, he wasn't a part of that phone call. He wasn't, uh, he didn't hear any conversation that was going on. He never says anything in his testimony that would in any way implicate Joe Biden as anything other than, at worst, a hapless victim of Hunter 
Biden. And that's why this is all a setup. This is going to be to, to take Hunter down. Hunter's going to find himself with some time in a club fed somewhere, probably not much. Uh, and Joe is going to get off with just leaving office. That's my guess. I don't know if it was an orchestrated call-in or not. It certainly was powerful, though, because you know if you're sitting with a foreign business person and you hear the vice president's voice, that's prize enough. So the power to have that access in that conversation, and it's not in a scheduled conference call, and it's a part of your family, that's, that's like the pinnacle of, uh, of power in D.C. So... They were launching a real estate acquisition. They're, they're launching real estate acquisition funds. That starts in 2008. And oddly, these real estate acquisition funds all have interests in Eastern Europe. That's where they're raising all their money. And according to the transcript, the way that it would work is Hunter and Archer would prove their potential value to prospective clients by putting Joe Biden on the speakerphone during business meetings and during dinners thus demonstrating profound access to decision-makers, which is exactly what it did, and that's exactly what, what Devin Archer was just talking about. I don't know if it was an orchestrated call-in or not. It certainly was powerful, though, because you know, if you're sitting with a foreign business person and you hear the vice president's voice, that's prize enough. So the power to have that access in that conversation, and it's not in a scheduled conference call, and it's a part of your family, that's... That's like the pinnacle of, uh, of power in D.C. It is. What you're looking at, what this story really is, you know, when they say uh, uh, politics is a lot like uh, making sausage, you, you don't want to see how the sausage is made. Uh, this is the sausage. You're getting a direct look inside the factory, inside the uh, house of ill repute. According to Devin, sometime between 2010 and 2015, he first met board members of Burisma when pitching them to contribute to and become members of their first real estate acquisition fund. So that's how long ago Devin Archer, uh, and, and this is while he's a partner of Hunter Biden, that's how long ago Hunter Biden's company was meeting with Burisma. And the way that Devin Archer says it, he, he says, I don't recall that they were interested, uh, but then he happens to meet them again in 2014. And this is, this is where the story gets crazy and really makes me very suspicious. He says he meets them in 2014 while working on, quote, a very large deal with an Eastern European bank to invest and be like an anchor investor on the debt side for their real estate fund number two. This just happened to be in Moscow. And it just happened to be the day Putin invaded Crimea. March 4th, 2014. Huh. Okay, so Devin just happens to be in Moscow, raising money from a giant Eastern European bank the day Putin just happens to invade Crimea. Huh, well, trivia, what happened just weeks before Putin invaded Crimea? The U.S. State Department, and presumably the CIA, led a color revolution to oust the pro-Moscow president of Ukraine. Huh. Okay. 
During that second encounter, one of the Burisma people casually mentioned to Devin that the former president of Poland, Alexander Kwasniewski, Alexander Kwasniewski, Kwasniewski, there you go, had joined the board of Burisma. He just happens to drop that in conversation. So that's the that's Poland and Ukraine, uh, kind of in bed together there a little bit. The president of Poland on the board of this corrupt energy company, what's been described as this corrupt energy company. A day later, the Burisma folks call Devin Archer and say, "Hey, you know the former president of Poland? He wants to meet with you." So Devin jets off from Moscow to Warsaw, where he meets the former president. And the former president asks Devin to join the board of Burisma in order to use his gifts for business development and expansion to help Burisma. And of course, Devin accepted that position. And very shortly thereafter, Devin brought Hunter into the picture, and Hunter ended up, he brought him in as counsel. And two months later, Hunter's a board member. And uh, meanwhile, Devin says, I don't know how he became a board member. I know he formed a a close relationship with the the owner himself. And uh, the next thing I know, he's a board member. So Devin is like, Devin's a board member, but he's totally in the dark as to, you know, just exactly how that happened. Meanwhile, neither of them were paid directly. Both of their salaries were channeled into a holding company and split among, uh, allegedly the split went three ways, which is a, can you imagine, poor Devin, (laughs) poor Devin, he doesn't even get to keep his own salary. You know who does that? A front man. He's a front is what it looks like. I'm not saying that he is a spook. I'm just saying that some of the things that he's saying and doing seem awfully spooky to me. From being positioned in Asia, immediately out of Yale. Uh, and he ends up in, in, as a frontman to the vice president's son. My imagination begins to wander. Maybe this guy is a spook. And if he's a spook, what's he doing? What's the game plan here? And I have a suspicion about that too. Uh, Let's see. Here's a question from from the transcript. Question. According to public records, Rosemont Seneca Bohai was started on... 23rd of February 13th, uh, sorry, on, uh, was started on February 13th of 2014. What was Rosemont Seneca Bohai? Answer, Rosemont Seneca Bohai was set up to hold the equity of BHR, which is Bohai Harvest Rosemont Partners, which was a private equity fund that was started between Harvest, which is like the Fidelity of China. The Fidelity of China. 
Bohai C Industrial Fund, which is a government-owned private equity fund that wanted to go private. So basically, the three letters of the acronym, Bohai, Harvest, Rosemont. And this was just set up to, to essentially own that equity and operate the, you know, what we thought was going to be a successful fund, which it ended up not being. That was, that was the reason for it. Question. In addition to what you just described, was, RS, was the RSB account also used to receive money from Burisma? Answer. Yes. So, a state-owned enterprise in China, the CCP, is investing cash into an entity that is also taking cash from Burisma. And that entity is where Hunter Biden and Archer, Devin Archer are taking their salary from the board. Meanwhile, the new government of Ukraine sweeps into power with a mandate to confront corruption. And the new prosecutor, Viktor Shokin, does exactly that. He aims his probe directly at Burisma. Well, we couldn't have that. So, at a December 2015 board of directors meeting in Dubai, Hunter was asked if there was anything he could do. Is there anything, the quote was, is there anything DC can do? And from the transcript, question. The request was help from the United States government to deal with the pressure they were under from their prosecutor, and that entailed the freezing of assets at the London Bank and other things that were going on in Ukraine. Answer, correct. Question, what did Hunter Biden do after he was given that request? Answer, listen, I did not hear this phone call, but he he called his dad. Question, how do you know that? Answer, because he, because I think, Vadim told me, and Vadim is the corporate secretary of, of uh, Burisma at the time. Vadim told me, but again, it's unclear. I just know that there was a call that happened there, and I was not privy to it. Question, what did Vadim tell you about the call? Answer, just that, just that they, we called DC, but he didn't, you know, again, it, it's not like the, there, were, there was not a, there was not, quote, oh, we've got all our problems solved, kind of, you know, revelation. I was not on that side of the equation and kind of working on the lobbying side of the business. Uh, well, what was the result of that, of that phone call, that alleged phone call? I think we all know it was this. Uh, um, I remember going over convincing our team, our <coughs> others, to convincing us that we should be providing for loan guarantees. And I went over, I guess the... 12th, 13th time to Kiev, and, uh, and I was going, supposed to announce that there was another billion dollar loan guarantee. And I had gotten a commitment from Poroshenko and from uh, Yatsenyuk that they would take action against the state prosecutor, and they didn't. So they said they had, they were walking out to the press conference, said, no, nah, I said, I'm not going to, we're not going to give you the billion dollars. They said, you have no authority, you're not the president. The president said, I said, call him. <laughs> I said, I'm telling you, you're not getting a billion dollars. I said, you're not getting a billion. I'm going to be leaving here. And I think it was, what, six hours? I looked, I said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. Oh, son of a <laughs> got fired. And they put in place someone who was solid. 
Okay, so let's recap this because it's in its totality, it's actually pretty interesting. Uh, Hunter Biden and Devin Archer, their company is in Moscow the day that Putin invades Crimea. Very shortly thereafter, their company is plugged into, via Poland, is plugged into Burisma. And then, shortly thereafter, in a year or so, Biden, VP Biden, swoops in to protect Burisma. Now, the narrative is that he did this to protect his son. And I'm not so sure that that's the case. Because if I do think that maybe Devin Archer is not just a business partner, but is actually a spook, that changes things. We have to ask, well, what's a spook doing? What are they doing? And what does the CIA tend to do in its clandestine corrupt operations? They're usually financing weapons sales and procurement and movement and delivery in clandestine wars to Al-Qaeda, to ISIS, to I don't know who else. And I, I just kind of wonder, did Hunter Biden essentially steal did they did hunter and archer essentially steal ccp cash funnel it through burisma or maybe not burisma but funneled it to whoever uh using ukraine as a channel to, to move arms you know, there's a lot of suspicion that the arms that are moving through Ukraine right now are not actually ending up in Ukraine. There's a lot of suspicion that they're ending up in Africa. And our next episode will probably deal with that to some degree because Africa is starting to pop off. Uh, I don't have a lot of... I don't, I, I'm only just beginning to piece this together. You're listening to a very young idea here that perhaps... Maybe Devin Archer is the spook, the spook and perhaps... Uh, Hunter, maybe Hunter, I don't think Hunter is a spook. Hunter is, uh, I think Hunter is a wreck, is a train wreck that perhaps they used. Perhaps the corruption is a cover story. Maybe the corruption, they put out Hunter uh, with uh, uh, prostitutes freebasing cocaine and no one is paying attention to other parts of the story. Everybody's paying attention to those videos, those images, Hunter's corruption, Hunter's drug addiction. And maybe that's actually, that's a big smokescreen. I'm not saying that Hunter isn't those things. I think Hunter is probably being used, if I'm right about this. So, to me, this all really does come from this transcript and what I'm reading of of Devin Archer and his upbringing. And uh, it just makes me wonder. He seems like a very good recruit. How did he end up in Asia? How does he end up all over Eastern Europe? This just seems, again, I'm just saying, 
It seems a little spooky. All right. Now that's that's the end of my Devon Archer. Enough of that distraction. Here, how about this distraction? That's right, ladies and gentlemen, we've reached that point in the program where I get to tell you how it is. We do business here. Money. Honey. No, not money, honey. We're not even asking for money right now. Uh, You may have noticed there's no sponsors. I just spoke for over an hour. No sponsors. We have no corporate sponsors. We take no corporate sponsorship. When you take corporate sponsorship, you can only produce content that satisfies your corporate sponsors. And you know corporate sponsors are, are... uh, uh, among the leading censors of the narrative. And we are deconstructing the propaganda war that corporate America is helping to sponsor. And so, no, we don't have, we don't have corporate sponsors. We have listener sponsors. We have citizen sponsors. We have our producers. That's all of you. If you're listening to this program, you are a producer of the Truth Bait podcast. Take a bow. Pat yourself on the back. That's good. That's a good thing. You know, you, if you hate corporate media, this is a vehicle for you to make to to shape a, a a new type of media, a deconstruction of the propaganda war. You are the producer. You do that by any number of ways. Again, if you feel you're getting value, return value to the podcast, and eventually down the line, sometime in the future, we'll probably be asking for cash donations to help keep the lights on. But right now, we're trying to build a community. We need you to share the show. We need you to write us at truththetruthbait.com. Send us content. We have a number of great producers who are just sending us value every week by sending us uh, stories that they're seeing, sending us videos. uh, 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 Let's see. um, Sending us feedback. I want to read this uh, piece of email that came in from... Uh, Keith in Wisconsin. Hi, Jeremy and Andrew. You wasted our time with the Barbie Shapiro stuff. Pop culture has no place on the podcast. (laughs) I get you want to expose the woke way of Disney. We all know that. By the way, I started to type in hi, Andrew and Jeremy, but I put Jeremy first because I know the Barbie stuff was Andrew's topic. So I demoted him. Shapiro is the conservative movement version of Barbie (laughs) and is as irrelevant as Barbie and Disney. I'll never get those minutes back that I had to hear Shapiro talk. Way more annoying than RFK's voice. Oh, wow. That's right. And I can't, I don't really have a formula to improve Shapiro because the only way to improve Shapiro's voice is to slow him down. And that would lead to us listening to him longer. And I'm not going to do that to people. So, yeah. He says, So you owe me. Uh, Yeah. So, (laughs) well, yeah, maybe I do owe you then in that case. Uh, Look, you know. It, this is a very funny email. Thank you very much for writing in, Keith. Uh, but let me just... I have to say, I don't take it lightly that you are spending your time listening to this podcast. You don't get your time back when you listen to this. It, you are a producer when you listen to this podcast. You're engaging with it. Keith is writing us and and telling us... Uh, Keith... Um, 
I can't promise we'll never have Shapiro again. Just know I'm an ally with your cause. Even I don't like playing Shapiro. It is, uh, uh, it's grating to listen to. Uh, but sometimes he makes a good point, and I, uh, and he, I played him because he became so relevant in that moment with that 45-minute uh, uh, screed that he did. Um, so, uh, and then uh, Al and Joliet, Big Al, he wrote in, Big Al went to see Barbie, and, uh, and I, you know, I know we're still, we're talking about a lot of Barbie still, but I think this will be the end of us talking about Barbie, hopefully. Uh, he writes in, I attended a viewing of the Barbie movie to see if what I was thinking after hearing Andrew's Barbie movie review might have been the case. To me, there was a suggestion that the creation account of Adam and Eve from the book of Genesis in the Bible was gender flipped with the Barbie being an Adam figure while Ken was the corresponding Eve. Wow. Al, genius. I never thought of that. And now that you mention it, it is totally obvious. Yeah, that there, there is a whole fall from grace plot uh, that really seems to occur with within this. It's not a, it's not a, you know a, a a blow for blow parallel, but it is. It, I can absolutely see that in there, and I didn't see it before. So great observation. He goes on after seeing the movie. Yes, this can be viewed as part of the plot line that also includes a god figure that's a woman, the creator of the Barbie doll concept and product. There's even a sequence in the movie where the creator of Barbie invites Barbie to walk with her in an outdoor setting, mildly suggesting a Garden of Eden setting. And yes, you're you're absolutely right, Al. The resulting world be, uh, being turned upside down by Ken's creation of the Kendom does also have suggestion of the fall from grace of Adam and Eve. And so, yeah, so Ken, Ken well, uh, would no, because Barbie is the one who has. The, who takes the bite of the apple in the movie represented by weird Barbie giving ordinary Barbie the choice between putting her Barbie slipper back on or putting on a Birkenstock. And if she puts on the Birkenstock, she will learn the truth. And so knowledge is in the shape of the Birkenstock, which she takes the metaphorical bite of. So she is the Eve character, even if it is, even if it is flipped. Uh... Uh, he says, "Isn't ex-, he goes on to say it isn't exclusively the origin backbone, as there's also a Pinocchio reference, and I, you know, I somehow I miss that too. I miss sometimes I miss the obvious things, uh, the forest through the trees. Yes, of course, there's a Pinocchio uh, reference going on here. She is a doll who uh, decides that she wants to be a real person. So yes, very big Pinocchio angle there." Uh, thank you to both of you for writing in, and that is that is how we do it. That's you know that is how uh, we're building this podcast, this deconstruction of the propaganda war, which you need, I need, we all need, Jeremy needs, and will be a part of when he can return. Uh, the the uh, uh, so, so please write us a truth at truthbait.com uh, and eventually send us a tremendous amount of money when we eventually get to that point. Now, let's move on. That's the end of the ask, and I still need to come up with music for the end of the ask. I'm just going to play that again. That's the end of the ask, ladies and gentlemen, and this is when we move back on to the program. 
So, uh, what should we do next? Oh, I have to remove that now. I'm glitching. I'm glitching. An hour and 20 minutes in, the wheels are falling off. Uh, let's go. Uh, oh, wait here. Since I had that one last thing on Barbie. <laughs> This is this just I found this clip today, so I'm gonna play it. Maybe this will end Barbie on the show forever. But I found COVID Barbie. I don't remember the last time I went to see a movie because I don't love going to the movie theater. But I'll tell you what, it pisses me off that I can't go see Barbie. I wanna go see it. Even if it is white feminism, I wanna be able to go. So I'm doing a thing. Even if it is white feminism, <laughs> I'm just going to describe her. This woman is in very poor health. She is, uh, I don't know if she has any disease or anything, but she's in, she is grossly obese. Uh, and a very obese white woman who looks like she might be a white liberal who would be your prime candidate, I think, for... Uh, well, uh, here you go. Even if it is white feminism, I want to be able to go. So I'm doing a thing. And if you live in the Pacific Northwest, you can do a thing with me. Here's what it is. Next week, which is July 31st, August 1st, someday next week on a weekday, I am renting out a theater in Northwest Portland. The entire theater. The whole theater. Um, the theater seats 46 people, I think. We're only going to do 20 tickets. So me and 19 other people, that's it. Um, in addition to that, there will be one employee. So the entire building, the entire cinema is going to be one employee plus 20 attendees. That's it. Um, we are the only people in the building and every single person, including that employee, is going to be wearing an N95 the entire time. The employee is going to put it on before they enter the building. They've been chosen specifically for this purpose they seem to get it um oh the poor employee <laughs> wow this is not i mean this was only just a week ago this is covid is long gone as a as a threat it's a cold now this woman who is so hyper sensitive anxiety ridden freaked out about her health also probably just doesn't seem to be able to lay off the Arby's uh, or wherever she is getting her entire overload of carbs. This woman is a walking contradiction. Um, if you show up because you bought a ticket, I need to see a KN94 well-fitted or a 95 well-fitted or a P100. And if I see a baggy mask, I'm going to tell you to take it off and put on one that I hand you. I'm holding onto a bunch of masks. Choose the one you like best. Um, Doesn't, don't you just want to go see a movie with her? Doesn't she sound like fun? There are no concessions during the movie. They're not even going to open it up. Do not bother bringing food or drinks. You may not take your mask off in the movie. Uh, this gets better and better. <laughs> This gets better and better. If you need to scratch your nose or you need to take a sip of water, you need to get up, exit the theater, do that, and then come back. Um, they're going to be medically fragile people there. This is their <laughs> mentally fragile people too. First opportunity in like three and a half years, so we are not around here, folks. Um, no kids that can't wear a mask solidly for two hours. Like I'm not going to do little kids because I don't blame them, but it is what it is. This is going to be a morning showing. We are the first people in the building, so we will be in and out well before any other employees or other people show up for other showings. The building will have had a chance. Can you imagine the conversation that this woman had with the manager of this theater? And 
bless the manager of this theater because they are just they're just doing anything to accommodate. They just want to accommodate. They they're not even going to make any money off of this. They're going to lose money off of this showing. Uh, although it's happening in the morning, so maybe nobody was going to be there anyway. But you know, if you take over an entire show like this and you forbid concessions, you're crushing the theater at that point. There is no incentive for the theater. Uh, they make very little money off the ticket sale. They make their money off the concessions. It's why the concessions are as expensive as they are. So this is really, I want to meet this manager. This is, the, this is a, fa- a fantastic manager that was willing to bend over backwards for, for these customers. The, the, uh, uh, I don't, can, do you think she can find 19 other people that are as insufferable as her? chance to clear the air from the night before um and also they upgraded their filtration over the past three years and they just had an inspection june 26th their quarterly inspection and changed out all of their MERV filters so they're in a pretty good spot it's gonna be 20 to 25 bucks a person all i'm doing is covering the cost uh, so you have to pay more than you normally would (laughs) uh that's it um so i will refund any overages um it is a risk I don't know how else to put that. It is definitely a risk to be in a building for two hours. Makes me anxious. But I feel like it's a measured risk and one I'm willing to take. And if there are more cautions that we could take, definitely let me know. But if you want to go... Um, what, what additional cautions could we take, do you think? <laughs> they, the, they'll all get inside giant balloons. Like, like you see on those uh, uh, variety shows, <laughs> those uh, America's Got Talent, sometimes the person will like climb into a balloon. Uh, everybody comes in in their own gas masks. I, everybody gets their own theater. Hit the comments, let me know, and I'll be in touch. I'll get in touch with you over DM, and we will make it work. I'm excited. I think for Barbie did not expect to be saying that, right? Wow. Yeah, that's COVID Barbie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, that's it. Uh, frankly, I have to I have to say I found COVID Barbie less annoying than uh uh Ben Shapiro Barbie. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is it was a step in the right direction. I hope nobody wants their time back after listening to COVID, Barbie, I can't. There's nothing I can do for you. Okay, so moving on, let's talk about let's talk about Disney. Um, there's a lot going on with Disney right now. Uh, so this story popped up late last week. Next tonight to the news involving our parent company tonight. This is uh, on ABC News. Next tonight to the news involving our parent company tonight. Disney revealing a decision that they say was not easy to make, canceling a $1 billion project in Florida that would have brought 2,000 jobs to the state, citing the, quote, changing business conditions in that state. It comes with Disney embroiled in a public battle with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis that began after the company came out against what critics call the Don't Say Gay law. Which limits classroom discussion about sexual orientation and gender identity. Since then, DeSantis has taken aim at Disney's special status in the state. Okay, that story made the rounds right at the same time that 
This one went around. DeSantis-controlled Disney World District abolishes diversity equity initiatives. And uh, so here, let's see if I've got anything from the story. I didn't clip anything from the story. Um, but the, the what did it used to be, the Reedy, the Reedy District. Uh, D- Disney used to operate its own uh, uh territory essentially it had its own county that was separate from the state they were able to work this out when they uh, uh when they first mo- uh, developed disney world and uh, it went on for many years but uh, broke down when disney attacked governor DeSantis, and he dissolved their special district and essentially took it over and brought them under the same rules and laws that the rest of the state is under and uh yeah so now it's under the central florida tourism oversight district and uh they uh, abolished all of the dei uh yeah it used to be called the reedy creek improvement district and they went and abolished the DEI programs and so these two pieces of news were going around at the same time desantis Dissolves the DEI for Disney, and uh, Disney uh, uh, doesn't do, you know, backed away from its billion-dollar camp. Next tonight to the news involving our parent company tonight, Disney revealing a decision that they say was not easy to make, canceling a $1 billion project in Florida that would have brought 2,000 jobs to the state, citing the, quote, changing business conditions in that state. So... Yeah, what are the changing business conditions in that state? Well, the, their parks are empty now. They blew a billion dollars on their Star Wars hotel that they're now that they've already closed. It was only open for I think just over a year. Uh, they've been they're they are burning through cash uh, faster than Elon Musk burns through rocket fuel. Uh, their their changing business climate has very little to do with DeSantis has much more to do with the fact that they're bleeding out. But this was what, you know, when I see these stories coming out together, uh, I begin to, my mind begins to play with them because I, first of all, I don't think that these narratives come out accidentally at the same time. And I don't think that there's a great big plot. I'm just saying that uh, I think that there are a lot of aligned incentives in place. And I think that, Disney and DeSantis, even though they're portrayed as at war with each other, this is going to be very counter-narrative for you all, what if they're actually aligned? What if Disney loves DeSantis as much as DeSantis clearly loves Disney? Well, you know DeSantis loves Disney. He has uh, found his political fortunes in Florida, going after Disney, going after big, bad, woke Disney, where woke goes to die. Disney is bleeding cash. Why are they bleeding cash? We all know why they're bleeding cash. Go woke, go broke. They are infested with social justice warriors in their creative teams all the way up and down the line. And they're held hostage. Disney's boardroom, their executive suite, is held hostage. They can, what are they going to do? Let's suppose Disney realizes, oh, we are dying on the vine. We're, we're bleeding out. 
All of our creatives hate our IP. This is insane. We, we can't continue down this path. What are you going to do? Are you going to fire all of your artists? No, you can't do that. You have a lot of money invested in them. You can't, you can't just give up all of your... Who are you going to replace them with? You can't do that. You need a boogeyman. You need a bad guy. You need a bad guy wrestler who's going to come in and strip the DEI out of your company. Uh, we didn't want to do it. The bad, bad guy over there, he did it. Mr. DeSantis. Hitler. Now, just to be clear, what DeSantis did with the DEI inside that district does not affect Disney the corporation. Disney the corporation is free to continue uh, uh, with all of its DEI incentives uh, and structures in place, except for uh, where it is regarding the intersection of the uh, that the the district, the tourism district that that Florida now has control of, and that district itself and all of its operations, they cannot do any DEI. But that it got me thinking: What if Disney needs a Ron DeSantis? The corporate boardrooms are looking for any way out of this they can. They don't want. They don't want. To be doing this stuff, they're under the threat of of BlackRock and Vanguard. They're the ones that are pushing this, and these companies can't afford to lose their financing, so they have to go along. They are begging for the backlash. I would bet Target put that thing. They put their their LGBTQ IA plus plus RPM display out right in the front, hoping for the backlash. I bet Bud Light wanted the backlash. Maybe not. <laughs> that backlash went way too far for them. But this is the backlash is a huge favor to corporate America who can turn around now and say, this has got to stop. It gives them leverage. So, yeah, I just kind of wondered if Disney and DeSantis, are they in cahoots? Cahoots, that's a very old-fashioned word. Um... What else? What else? What else? Uh, oh, this came out of San Francisco. Th- this just came out uh, when the last, I don't know, 48 hours, and then it was up on Not the Bee. Uh, a woman who was attacked in San Francisco, and she goes on her social media on TikTok uh, to voice her uh, discontent. I'm literally shaking right now. I was just getting groceries and I live in San Francisco and I never really feel fully safe. If you live in San Francisco, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. And I just got groceries. I'm walking out of the store and this guy is walking past me and says, move you stupid and he spits in my face, spits all over my face. And then I say, excuse me, did you just spit in my face? And he says, move or I'll you. There's also people everywhere and everyone's just walking by because they're like, I can't handle something else in San Francisco. It's always something else. I don't even know why I'm posting this. If you live in San Francisco, do you feel this way all the time? I don't feel safe, ever. I literally never feel safe. It's better when it's daylight. But nighttime, no, not leaving my house. (laughs) So, Not The Bee runs this story. And uh, they they, they run a couple of people's tweets. Benny Johnson, at Benny Johnson... I did see oh, sorry, I see these videos and I don't feel a tiny ounce of pity. I look at the voting record. Did you vote Democrat? Did you march with BLM? Defund the police? Yes, yes, yes. 
then you literally created the environment for this to happen to you. Stop crying. Okay, so that's Benny Johnson. Uh, Then you have Mike Cernovich, at Cernovich. If on a jury, she would vote to convict Daniel Penny. We must not let our humanity and Christian virtue be used against us anymore. This is the world she demanded. Let her live in it. Okay. Look, I'm not a Christian. That doesn't sound like a very Christian sentiment, but I I take his point. Um, I think this is the wrong approach, though. Uh, you know, it, my first thought was, well, who knows what how what this woman's politics are, and it shouldn't matter. Okay, but I but there is a point to be made. So okay, but who knows what her politics are, and but let's suppose. Uh, I mean, she, she sounds like she has a Midwestern dialect or a Midwestern accent. So, I mean, I, I don't. Most are most people from San Francisco. Are most people living there from San Francisco? Don't they all mostly come from somewhere else? For all we know, she comes from a red district now. Uh, but apparently, when you read the not the B article, let's see. She has a few follow up videos to the above where she's where she is angry that it went viral and calls out racist anti-Semitic comments without actually addressing the issue at hand. Okay, so now we can, we can throw out the possibility that she is a, uh, not a raging liberal. She is a raging liberal living in San Francisco. She says she doesn't blame the people of states like Texas when there's a shooting where open carry is legal, which is, weird, uh, which is a weird comparison considering California's crime shooting uh, rates are much higher, and it's barely legal to own a gun there. But here's my question, says the article. Governing by empathy produces awful results, as this woman has experienced, but I can't disregard my Christian virtue and the desire to protect uh, women from experiencing horrible situations like this. Now, meanwhile, that's not a question. Whoever wrote this article, uh, uh, Harris Rigby at Not the B. That's not a question. Um, she almost certainly voted for it, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to help and protect her anyway. Yes, that is the answer. You should try to help her. She's at her most red pillable moment in that vulnerability. Th- that is not the time to slap her in the face. That is the time to extend a hand. That is a time to say, yes, we we understand. And 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 maybe it, it's a teachable moment for her. Uh, it could be the beginning of her coming over. And maybe that would influence it's a friend of hers. Maybe she's got a close friend who would see that this happened to her and, and it would influence her. But what is the what is it now? Now it is, yeah, you deserve it. You vote for this. And, and you know what? I'm not I'm not judging. I've been there myself. Frankly, a lot of times that's my first response to for some reason in this case it wasn't. Something about her, her vulnerability. Uh, you know, she looks like maybe, you know, she looks like family members of mine. Maybe that's why it touched me. Uh, but uh, she, uh, everybody should try to just you know, hold on to their humanity and look for the moments to convert people uh, away from the dark side. Uh, oh, here's a, this was another piece of serious news. Do you know that, uh, I know we were all paying attention to Devin Archer, but the U.S. credit rating... Uh, there are three credit rating agencies that rate the credit of governments. We were downgraded. Uh, oh, I forget when we were downgraded. I th- was it? 
uh, maybe two years ago or a year and a half ago, we were downgraded by one of the uh, one of the services. We were recently downgraded by a second service. So two out of three services have downgraded the credit of the United States. One of three major credit firms has downgraded the United States' credit rating from AAA to AA+. So how significant is a downgrade from AAA to AA+. There's very little real estate. Um, and first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, little real estate between AAA plus and AA plus. It's sort of semantic. It's t- really- <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. No, there's really no difference whatsoever between AAA and AA plus. It's a, uh, we don't even know what, why the distinctions exist. Um, interestingly, Fitch had the option of lowering the country uh, rating, which uh, would have had much more... Uh, dramatic or palpable spillover in markets, but um, the idea being AAA plus, you're still in the pretty much top category of uh, ratings. Everything is fine. Uh, Nothing to worry about. Uh, That was CBS, and uh, everything is fine over in CBS land. On the other hand, if you go look at foreign media, this comes out of India. But along with the rating, Fitch has also shared an analysis and it merits a closer look. Fitch says this downgrade does not happen overnight. America's position has been gradually deteriorating. And broadly, there are three problems. Erosion of governance, rising government deficit, and high levels of debt. In fact, debt is what Fitch is the most worried about. America's national debt stands at more than $30 trillion. It is the highest in the world, $30 trillion. And the U.S. struggles to manage it. And on that front, Fitch has issued a scathing indictment. In fact, let me quote from that report. In Fitch's view, there has been a steady deterioration in standards of governance over the last 20 years. The repeated debt limit, political standoffs and last minute resolutions have eroded confidence in fiscal management. There is a clear takeaway from this. Fitch has lost trust in America. It doesn't think that the US is the best anymore. America owes more than $32 trillion. That is a real number. It's not an estimate. So instead of complaining, perhaps the U.S. should set its house in order. Yeah. No. Why would we set our house in order? Everything's fine. It's, it's, it's a, there's hardly a distinction. Uh, here's from ABC. Fitch downgrading it from AAA status to AA plus status. So what does that mean in real terms? Well, right now, the U.S. government has about $31 trillion in debt. That debt is growing and it's expected to exceed the total size of the U.S. economy in very short order. And as this downgrade takes place, it makes it potentially harder for the government to borrow money and more expensive. Now, we haven't seen that play out yet, but if it were to, it would potentially raise taxes and create cuts in certain government spending, meaning fewer government programs in the future. And Washington at this point in time doesn't seem to have any kind of agreement around how to deal with the issue. Michael? Well, I know we hope they don't have to cut government programs and raise taxes. I don't think anybody wants that. Thank you so much. <laughs> Michael Strahan. Well, we hope they don't have to cut any government programs or raise any taxes. Uh, Essentially, we hope we don't have to do anything. Uh, Yeah, they're they're, They don't see how we're going to get out of our debt, and they really don't have any confidence 
when they see because it's not just you know the news is the media they're trying to play it off as it's because these Republicans are obstinate in Congress and they they uh, bring us this debt ceiling crisis every time. That's not what it is. These credit rating agencies can see that our economic future is a disaster when you take a look at like what is going on in cities like Chicago. City now they're making arrests and making sure that those teens are charged. 40 people were arrested last night, most of them juveniles, some as young as 12 years old, hit with reckless misconduct charges. A 15-year-old was arrested for having a gun with a laser and a silencer on it, and a 17-year-old was arrested for having a machine gun. This 7-Eleven behind me was looted, turned completely upside down. Uh... So, yeah, that's in Chicago where you have what the media are calling, you have, well, you, the, most of the media, the mainstream media in Chicago are calling it teen takeovers. Teen takeovers. That, that, uh, <laughs> the, a teen takeover sounds like something that happens at Six Flags Great America. <laughs> the teen takeover. It's a, it's a promotion night, the teen takeover. So they're 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 it's a euphemism, and some people in the media aren't having it. They're calling it what it is. These are mob actions, and one of the people in the media, one of the lone people still capable of uh, comprehending truth, uh, asked the mayor, uh, uh, Mayor Brandon Johnson, communist of Chicago. I, and by the way, that's not an exaggeration. The dude. Uh, uh, is, is friends with Bill Ayers, just like Obama was, coincidentally. Uh, hangs out with Bill Ayers. So, you know, uh, Chicago Teachers Union, usually that is a, a hotbed of communists. Um, Brandon Johnson, uh, his biggest issue is not these mob actions, it's people calling them mob actions. And I'm grateful again that the men and women who serve this city on the front line are providing the type of system of care that's going to be necessary in order to bring structure and calm in the city. Quick follow-up, when you say trends, what do you mean? Can you give us an example of a couple of the trends you're seeing? Oh, you're not aware of some of these large gatherings? You're talking about the new model oh. actions? Well, no. That's, 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 that's not appropriate. We're not talking about mob actions. I didn't say that. He starts scolding them. No, that's not appropriate. What uh, okay, what I'm... Hold on a second, okay? Respectfully. These large gatherings, these large gatherings, just hold on a second, y'all. I promise you, we have time to talk. It's important that we speak of these dynamics in an appropriate way. This is not to obfuscate what is actually taking place, but we have to be very careful when we use language to describe certain behavior. There's history in this city. I mean, to refer to children as like baby Al Capones is not appropriate. Okay, hang on a second. <laughs> because basically what he just did was equate all the, the anybody called mob, anything mob, with Italian-Americans. 
And I'm, I think I'm going to bet that Italian-Americans are going to take some exception to that. And as a Jew, what about the Jewish mafia? There's a Jewish mob. We're not going to recognize my, uh, my Jewish peeps. What, uh, there's an Irish mob. There's all sorts of different kinds of mobs. And I'm pretty sure there are black mobs. Now, we're not talking about organized crime, although I, some of this probably is organized at, at some level. It's organized on social media. Uh, these mobs of people, and they're not all kids, they're not all teens, so it's not just a teen takeover, it's a mob takeover, a mob of people. Uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, he that is what it is. And his, his concern is that you're calling it a mob. Uh, the, the, the mob isn't the problem, it's you're referencing the mob, it's your observing of the mob. You're the problem, you're the oppressor. Even though these people are in the street uh, committing acts of vandalism and violence, they're the oppressed, and you're not going to impress them with your oppress them with your language in his press room. So 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 let me just so just let me just let me finish, please, okay? What I'm saying is is that when you ask for very specific examples, there have been other attempts to have large gatherings, and we've intercepted those attempts. Large gatherings, yes, again, at Great America, that's a large gathering. Uh, at, uh, at, 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 at Wrigley Field, that's a large gathering. I'm pretty sure there's a large gathering happening there tonight. Maybe the city can prevent that too. No, it's not large gatherings. It's, it's large mob actions. Uh, and thankfully, even, even black America gets it. This is from uh, Black Conservative Perspective. I don't remember the last time I... Oh, wait, no, that's not Black Conservative Perspective. Where did you go? <gasps> Where are you? There it is. I don't know how that started playing. This is from Black Conservative Perspective on YouTube. Okay, it didn't take long for us to see that this progressive radical lunatic uh, is running this city into the ground, okay? And um, part of the reason why is that this guy is scared to tell the truth about these teenagers and the fact that they are agents of chaos and a destruction to society. If you call it for what it is, if you call it a mob, okay, uh, if you call them criminals, Right. If you demonize them, this guy gets more triggered by that than the fact that, um, again, this stuff is happening in the first place and people are losing their lives over the nonsense. OK, again, there were 40 teenagers charged losing their lives and people are losing their businesses. And don't you think there's a direct connection between that and the United States credit ratings being downgraded because they're looking at our future and they're seeing we don't have one at this current rate. So they can blame the Republicans in Congress if they want, but I'm pretty sure it has much more to do with the way the left is destroying every city in America they can get their hands on. And it makes me wonder... Has George Soros shorted the dollar? Well, that's it, ladies and gentlemen. That brings us to the end of our podcast for the day. Thanks for spending your time listening to our deconstruction of the propaganda war being perpetrated against us. 
And tune in every Tuesday and Friday when we bring you another episode of the Truth Bait Podcast. Hopefully, Jeremy will be able to return soon to his chair in the Truth Bait Podcast. How did we do today? Did you hang in there? Was it okay as a solo show? I hope Jeremy returns as soon as he can, but we must, the show must go on. The truth waits for no one. Write us at truth at truthbait.com and uh, and send me your clips. Send clips. I love it. Remember to send what you like about the clip. Send a time code. Don't just send me a long clip. Otherwise, I can't watch it. And now, back into the sea of clickbait with us all.